Well, it's Father's Day, um, so we need to talk about that. Um, and it's weird to talk about Father's Day, because I feel like I'm just up here talking about how great I am, but um, I'm, I'm ac- this is a picture of me and Lucy. I'm actually, just for Father's Day, got Lucy and I the same pair of socks, and she's, she's wearing them. I'm very grateful I didn't get a tie. Um, so that's us. Um, and then uh, a blessing from VBS, um, Jess was feeling kind of down and out all week, and so I actually brought Lucy into the toddler room um, three of the days this week during VBS, which was a huge blessing for us, um, and also a, as great of a father as I may think I am, as soon as I walked her into the toddler room and she saw other kids in there, she didn't even say goodbye, um, and, and that was the first time we've ever left her somewhere that wasn't with one of us. And so it was one of those, like, happy, sad moments. Um, but, but we were blessed by VBS this year in a huge way. So thank you to the toddler room team and everyone at VBS. Well, the sermon today is called Knowledge is the Power. And to begin our conversation, we need to talk specifically about calculators. Um, when I, I, I have, like... 20 memories of this. Um, I don't know how many of them are true, but at least five of them are true. Where a teacher said, all right, put all your stuff away. It's time to take a test. And I'd be like, why can't we use a calculator? I can use a calculator on my homework. Why can't I use a calculator on my test? And the response of every teacher was, well, are you going to carry around a calculator in your pocket for the rest of your life? Um, And the short answer to that is cell phones. Um, the long answer to that is anywhere that I might need a calculator, like my dad's office, he has a calculator next to his computer. Um, also you can Google, I mean, they just didn't think we'd even use computers by now. I don't know. Um, when I got older, I had to get a TI-84 or a T, I, I guess I had a TI-86. I had whatever was the newest form of calculator three years before I got it because it was a hand-me-down from my older sister. Um, and, and those calculators, uh, this is going to just blow your mind. In the 1990s and 2000s, those calculators cost around $150. Even though they were not that powerful compared to a cell phone. Today, they cost, oh, they still cost like $150. I don't understand it. Um, I, um, because this is a $10 graphing calculator app that does everything this, compu- or this calculator does. And way more than that solar-powered calculator does. Um, But I would get so ticked because I would be like, I'm I'm not going to do cosine and sine and Sokotoa and all those things the rest of my life. I'm not going to show up somewhere where I need to do that. And if I need to do that, I'll figure out how to get a hold of a calculator. Like, teach me how to be resourceful enough for that. And so I got ticked off at teacher after teacher because I just always thought, like, the, the machine does it. Why do I need to do it? Until my junior year of high school. My junior year of high school, I took a thing called the ACT, which features English, reading, math, and science. Um, and uh, it, in, in Iowa at this time, this was a long time ago, like the turn of the century, um, but um, in, 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 in Iowa at that time, that was how they determined, like, where you'd, where you'd be able to get scholarships and different things. And so I did a bunch of practice tests. I always did really good on English and reading and math. Um, because for math, you got to use your calculator. 
okay? Um, and then I did bad on science. And the day of the ACT, we did the reading and, I think, reading and English first, and then we did science. And they let you use your calculator for the science portion. Um, I don't remember why we needed it, but I remembered I was really glad to have it because I'm a really fast test taker. So I finished the science portion of the test. I felt really good about it. I pulled out my TI-86, and I started playing Tetris on it because the TI-86 had Tetris on it, and I was so excited to do that. And so I sat there for about 30 minutes playing Tetris, and then my battery died. <laughs> and so when I got to the math portion of the ACT, the portion that in practice test I almost always got perfect because I could manipulate a calculator, I got my lowest score ever. I got a really low score, and when my mom saw the scores, I remember her going, what happened? And I didn't want to tell her, but my science score was like near as high as you could get, and I was so proud of that score. And I was like, I don't think I could do better in science, but darn, I messed up math. And then I got into film school, so I never went back. But that vindicated all of my teachers who told me, are you going to walk around with a calculator? If I had just learned how to do things instead of learning how to use a calculator, I would have been in a much better position for the ACTs. So we're going to talk about knowledge today and understanding um, and it's the beginning of a series called Sharpened Iron. And, and we're talking, we're really talking about discipleship in this series, and we're, we're really talking about how to build a righteous culture as believers. And so to start, we need to look at a famous verse for discipleship. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Do you, do you see the Sharpened Iron series name now? Um, and... And I love, I love this verse, um, but there's something uncomfortable in this verse that no one ever thinks about. Iron sharpens iron into what? One man sharpens another into what? Um, you see, the iron sharpens iron principle is not just when two people from the church get together, they disciple each other well. It's a principle that you're being shaped in your interactions for righteousness or for wickedness. You can't escape that. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend like these verses only apply when good things happen. We're being shaped one way or we're being shaped another. Iron sharpens iron, so one man or person sharpens another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, we thank you as we dig into the book of Proverbs today and specifically Proverbs 28 and 29. We thank you that your desire in how these verses and Proverbs were arranged is for us to come to know how to faithfully follow you and faithfully follow you well. I pray you would speak through me. I, I pray in the things you've been speaking to me all week, I'd be able to articulate them well. Um, and I, I pray for our church that where we do not follow you well and where we are willing to be shaped by things outside of your goodness— that we would be cut to the heart and we would begin to say, what would it look like to do this better? We thank you that you give us your word to reveal to us who you are and who we are created to be and who we can be in Christ. And we pray that we would strive to follow after you. Pray that these would be your words and not mine. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, before we jump in, we have to, we have to talk about a few things in Proverbs. The first thing is we have to remember that the book of Proverbs is a book of principles, not promises. You can do every single thing right by the standard of the book of Proverbs, 
And the outcome can be things didn't work out. It's principles. It's if everyone lived this way and there was no sin, this would be the perfect way to live. But we live in a fallen world where we ourselves sin, and we are a part of this world that doesn't always match up. In fact, that's what the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's I refute the book of Proverbs because even when I do right, sometimes good things don't happen to me. And sometimes people do wrong and good things still happen to them. So the book of Proverbs is a book of principles, not promises. So for iron sharpens iron, it's a principle, not a promise. Proverbs is arranged in a collection of cohesive units, not random sayings. Um, Proverbs is not like Instagram or Facebook verse sharing. It's not like, like you don't just go iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. I mean, you can do that, but Proverbs 27 is a part of a passage Um, that's put together starting in Proverbs 25 through Proverbs 29, where the men of Hezekiah took the words of King Solomon and they put them together to show a picture of what it looks like to lead well and to build a righteous culture. And so Proverbs 27, 17 isn't in a vacuum. We don't just stop at this verse. We need to remember all the verses after it and the verses before it together. Or at least we need to be aware that these are not one-off sayings. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to go into this right now, but there's, there's a bunch of things that there's a lot of similarities that if you build this out, you see some really cool things. But we're actually not even going to be in Proverbs 27 in a minute. So Proverbs is a, arranged in collections of cohesive units, not random sayings. Now, the other thing I need to tell you here is that um, the collections, the, the, there's seven of them. Um, about a year ago on Mother's Day, I preached on how the Proverbs 31 woman is for men, not for women. Um, if you haven't listened to that, that would be useful, um, not just listening to me say that. But um, the collections are designed to guide someone wisely through every stage of life. You begin with a youth or a young person that, that is starting to figure out what does it look like to be wise. And then you build and you build. You get to Proverbs Collection 5, which is where we're going to be. And, and you're working on leadership. You're working on righteous culture building. You're working on having authority in your life over others and the, using that authority well. And then by Proverbs Collection 7, which is the Proverbs 31 woman you're looking at looking back on your life and did you do this well? And if so, it'll look like you were married to this woman who embodies wisdom. So these are not in a vacuum. They work together. And so that's where we're headed. But to head there, I'm going to just give you the, if, if you just remember this slide, you don't need to remember anything else I say. This is the heart of Proverbs 28 and 29. I want to understand God with such integrity that it does not matter what arises. I am able to respond with wise action that leads others to begin to understand God in the same way and do the same types of actions. Proverbs 28 and 29 is a passage about understanding who God is, following him with true integrity, pursuing him over the course of a lifetime, and passing it on to the next generation. This is, this is what discipleship is and what discipleship should be, and if we're being honest, it's what we should be striving towards. Today we're going to look at the phrase, I want to understand God, and as we go in, I'm not saying I want to understand God to the point of, oh, I know everything about God. That is impossible. We are creatures. God is creator. We will never understand all of him, but, but shouldn't we want to understand the one who created us 
To do that, we're going to start in Proverbs 28.1. And let me tell you all, I've got like five more background slides. I have to be super nerdy today. Otherwise, this whole series, you're going to be like, why are we just randomly jumping around here? But we're going to be in Proverbs 28. And the first verse is, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And Proverbs 28 and 29 is about building a righteous culture. And, And what we need to understand at the start of this is that those who intentionally or unintentionally build a wicked culture hit a point where they recognize this culture isn't what we want to be a part of and they run away from it. The righteous do not. The righteous stand like a lion, bold, ready to engage and ready to move things towards what we were created to be. Proverbs 25 through 29 is probably the most useful writing related to leadership in the Bible. And no one ever talks about it. But it's really cool, and we're going to jump in, and we're going to have fun with this. Um, but, but Proverbs 25 through 29, 25 through 27 is how should a king or a, a person in a position of authority interact with others? And then Proverbs 28 and 29 is how do we spread this out so it, it's not just one person. How do we spread it out so it's what we're producing as a culture? Proverbs 28 and 29 is about righteous culture building or wicked culture building. Because this is where we miss something really important in discipleship. You are either being discipled towards righteousness, towards looking like Jesus, or you're being discipled towards wickedness and not looking like Jesus. You're headed one way or you're headed the other. You can't say, well, I'm just kind of staying in the middle. Because does Jesus call us to stay in the middle and stay stagnant and stay lukewarm? No. And so that is probably headed this way. And we need to understand this. We also need to understand that in this conversation, it's going to get uncomfortable. Because we may be doing things that ultimately are wicked, and we may not want to address them because we say, I do enough righteous things. But if we want to understand God, we're going to have to come to terms with we're building one or the other. Now, Proverbs 28 and 29 are built around these units um, that Proverbs 28.1 through Proverbs 28.12, where we're going to be today, um, that Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.12 says, when the righteous triumph, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. And then Proverbs 28.28, there's another unit in there. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. And it goes on all the way down, and what happens is either righteousness is increasing or wickedness is increasing. It's that simple by, by Proverbs 28 and 29. And I know right now we're talking very black and white. And as Christians, and as people, and as postmodern people, and as people living in the internet information age, and as if you are a student and you watch anime, anime, no one's evil, everyone's just misunderstood and misguided, but we don't want things to be black and white. But at some point, if we want to grow, we're going to have to let things be black and white at least a little bit, and more than likely a lot. Proverbs 28 and 29 is about righteous culture building or wicked culture building. Finally, Proverbs 28 and 29 is designed with a clearly defined kingdom in mind. This is very important, and I'm going to explain it out for you using a 
it doesn't look as bad as I thought I would image um, for an ancient Jew, um, and, and I'm, um, you would have a person, they'd be a part of a kingdom, and then there would be the world. And so that person would have been an Israelite living in the kingdom of Israel. Now, Proverbs was probably written during or near the exile, so it's probably a Judahite in the kingdom of Judah, and then there's the other kingdoms. And what, what Proverbs 28 and 29 is concerned with is this person, the Israelite, living in this kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, not the other kingdoms. Now, that does not mean those other kingdoms do not matter, but the righteous culture that, that the Israelite who is trying to follow Proverbs 28 and 29 is focused on is the kingdom that they are a part of. It's not their job to tell the other nation what to do. It's their job to show the other nation that if you live righteously, here's the outcome. Now, in our modern setting, in the church, we, we do this kind of this way. We do Christian, and then we add it. You can't see this at home, I bet, but um, you, you, add, you got Christian, and then we go church, and then we go kingdom, and so we live in the USA, and then we go world. So we take this person, and this kingdom or community, and in this kingdom, and not for the world. And again, it's not that it's not for the world. It's that we have to understand that the church and the righteous culture we're building, our job is to start with us before we start working out there. Now, this is going to be awkward because I, I added an extra circle. I think this is how most Christians think. I think this is common, and it's, it's, it's got an extra circle for the church. And the problem is, is for some reason, we think the nation we live in is our kingdom, and it's incorrect. And so, so now you're like, Matt, why, why bother showing us these slides? I show you this because I want you thinking about this as we talk about what it should be to a modern you and I, the person as a Christian, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And what that means is if you are a follower of Jesus, he died, rose again, ascended to heaven, but he invited us, he declared before his death and after his death that he was bringing a kingdom and the kingdom is here and the kingdom will someday be much better. It's what we talked about in the Revelation series, the already but not yet. But the kingdom of God is the place where people who call Jesus king interact in the world. It's, it's a place for here and now. It, is, it comes together in the church. What we are doing now is gathering as a body of believers who are part of the kingdom of God on this earth as we will be someday in heaven. And the world includes all earthly kingdoms. That includes the kingdom we're in. The kingdom we are in is not the kingdom of God. There is no kingdom that has ever been the kingdom of God. I, in the Old Testament, you could say, well, Israel kind of was, and, and look where they got the kingdom Jesus came to bring and will ultimately bring in, in the, at the end of Revelation, and, and it, the kingdom he is coming to bring is a kingdom that will fill the whole earth. And for now it is a kingdom for those who call him king, who have his Holy Spirit, and who live on this earth as immigrants of his kingdom, living among other kingdoms, living well, first focused on themselves as that person, and then focused on the kingdom they are in, and not focused as much on that other, except that we need to tell that other about this so they will join this as well. Now, this is important. This is important for two very, I'm going to say the word important again. So I'm just my, I don't have a thesaurus on me, but I do have one in my pocket, sixth grade English teacher. But the point is, the point is, 
When we turn kingdom into part of the, if we say we're part of the United States, if we go back to that slide, which I'm not going to do, that adds the church and then the kingdom, and we start talking about the kingdom as a clearly defined place we're in, it's really easy to look in a kingdom where at least half, if not many more than half the people don't see Jesus as king and say, well, they're the wicked ones. We're the righteous ones. The problem is, is that the kingdom, if you are a Christian, that you have given your allegiance to, the lordship that you follow is Jesus Christ. And if he is your king, then you are a part of his kingdom first and foremost. And the conversations about discipleship need to start inside that kingdom before we start looking outside. We need to get our house in order before we start telling the world about the house we're in. Proverbs 28 and 29 is designed with a clearly defined kingdom in mind. If we want to be a righteous culture-building kingdom, if our church wants to be righteous in its culture-building, we got to start with our church, and we got to start with ourselves. Now, that does not mean we don't go share with others, right? The Great Commission, we're called to go share with others. But it does mean that we can't cheapen our message and say, well, we don't need to worry about us because the rest of the world's in a worse position. No, that means all the more we need to live righteously the way we were called to live in a way that multiplies it so that more and more people can see what happens when you follow Jesus. I want to understand God with such integrity that it does not matter what arises. I am able to respond with wise action that leads others to begin understanding God in the same way and do the same types of actions. That's our goal. Our question we're going to answer in like the next however many minutes is what does it look like to truly understand God through his word in a way that leads to a righteous kingdom? And I'm going to change it to a righteous culture because our church is a culture. We're like a petri dish. We get all the, all the good and bad and, and we want to be a righteous culture building place. And so what do we need to do to do this? What do we need to understand about God through his word in order to do this? I'm going to read the passage now. It's Proverbs 28, 1 through 12, um, and I'm going to fly through it here, um, and then after we're going to look at the big ideas from it. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. If one turns away his hearing from the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory But when the wicked rise, people hide. That's our passage for today. Now, um, I I didn't cite myself, but I stole these from a Prezi I did like four years ago here. Um, So I just want to put that out there. Um, It's not plagiarism, even though it might be. 
But I'm stealing from myself, taking things from the Bible, so I don't know. Um, but, um, so we started with the, wicked, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And we're ending with when the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Inside of this, um, and I know you're probably not going to be able to read these very well, but inside of this, we've got all these verses, and there are a couple key things that, that stand out. The first thing that stands out is, hopefully you saw this, is understanding and knowledge. Understanding and knowledge. And, and if we understand that to start, understand, I'm, again, no thesaurus, but if we understand that to start, the point of this passage is about understanding, and then the question is What? And there's a clear answer. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. If one turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So the word we're looking at today is how do we, if we want to understand God through his word, we need to understand the law itself. And let me tell you, when I say the word law... For most of you, I bet you're, you're trying to keep your eyes from glazing over, or they have already glazed over. Um, law is not a very fun word, I don't think. Um, but we need to understand the word behind the word. The word behind the word law, oh man, making it this big stresses it. Um, the law in Hebrew, the word behind it is the Torah. And the Torah, um, there's a couple ways to think about it. There's different arguments for what it would mean in, in Proverbs. The first thing is, is it might mean Genesis through Deuteronomy, which was the writings of Moses, which some people called the law. When Jesus is challenged by the scribes and Pharisees, they challenge him with questions from the law, and, and they're trying to trip him up, and he tells well, you know the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Others say it's just Deuteronomy. And then others say, well, at this point, we can say it's the Bible. It's, it's not simply, here's a bunch of rules God gave you. It's the whole of God's revelation. The Torah essentially refers to the principles and teachings that God has revealed in his word. When we see law in Proverbs, we need to think God's revealed truth in the whole Torah. Understanding the Torah means more than following rules, but instead understanding the reason the law is right to follow. If you read through any of the Gospels when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, the thing that the Pharisees are, are most often attacked for is the way they try and use the law to oppress others, and also the way that they deny doing what the law says for the poor and the marginalized. And in the passage we just read, you see a whole lot of conversation about the poor. And, uh, and the wise person, the person who follows the law, will take care of the poor. Because if you understand Genesis through Deuteronomy, or understand God's word in general, God cares that the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant are taken care of in the kingdom of Israel. And the same thing in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, the early church had no poor among them. It says that early on in the book of Acts. Because people who had sold what they had to make sure that the poor were taken care of. That's living out the Torah. It's not, hey, did you follow all of the rules today? It's understanding the heart of the God behind those things. We talked about David last week. The only one who saw the way God saw, the only one who saw into the hearts of man 
and said, I know what needs to be done. I know the God who will do these things, and I will act because I know God will deliver because God has promised to deliver. Understanding the Torah is not about crossing off, I did all these things today. It's about living with an understanding and right mindset of the God who we were called to follow. The idea behind Torah is the beginning of God's revelation to us by which we are given a clear picture of the creator who created us, God, the purpose for which we were created. We were created in his image to rule the earth on his behalf. That's Genesis 1. And and God's divine idea and, and his purpose in creation was that we would rule on his behalf in right relationship with him and in right relationship with each other. When we were in Revelation, you get to those final two chapters and we're just right back to what we were supposed to be in Genesis 1. The Torah is what it looks like to live well in creation. If, we li- if everyone lived this out, we would all live well. The Torah also tells us why we are unable to live well in creation, because of sin. It also tells us how to go back to living well in creation. It also tells us we can't on our own. And that's where Jesus' death and resurrection was necessary. And then I have etc., because this feels too cheap for talking about the Torah, um, but, but for the sake of time, we're just going to keep going. But I feel like we could keep doing bullet points if the TV was bigger. I'm going to jump right now to my favorite place to talk about the Torah, which is Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The Psalm 19 begins with creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above declares his majesty. And it's a picture of how creation, when it does what God created it to do, it glorifies God. And then in the middle, it shows how man can glorify God in what we do. And listen to the promises about the Torah, the law. First off, we need to see law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. They're all kind of the same thing. I hope you see that. You might be challenged by fear, but it's a reverent awe and understanding of the authority who is above us, the God who created us. And then there are six promises that if we will regard the law the way we should, we will see. If we want to understand God... We need to understand his word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I don't think there's another set of rules in the world that would revive my soul. I don't think there's another, uh, uh, another set of law. I mean, they, it could help make wise the simple, but, but I don't often hear rules said and I rejoice in my heart. Maybe some of you do. Maybe you're like super rule followers. But, but the point is, is that we're promised these things, that, that this is the purpose of God's word if we will regard it the way that we should. If we will turn to it and follow after it, we will live well. We will have a revived soul. We will be wise. We will have rejoicing in our hearts. We will have enlightened eyes. We will endure forever in following. And if we, if we could perfectly follow these, we would be righteous altogether. These, these are the promises about God's word in Psalm 19. So we come back here and we see the big idea out of this 
And if you weigh each of these in their own little two-line things and then weigh them together, you're going to see this theme as a theme about understanding. And that brings us back to our, our question. What does it look like to truly understand God through his word in a way that leads to a righteous culture? And to understand God is to recognize his word as the path by which he uses his spirit to shape us towards right living, allowing it on its own terms to shape us towards righteousness. Now, this is one of my favorite phrases, and when I use this phrase, people are always like, what does that mean? On its own terms. There is this reality that a lot of times we open the Bible on our terms. We use it like a self-help book. We use it like something that we're going to be encouraged by because we open it and Jesus loves me. Great. Got it. John 3.16. It's true, but we open it only when we're in need rather than seeing it as the source of a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And so we use it backwards. We use it not as something to, to grow us and help us be a part of who we were created to be. We use it instead on our terms. And I, I want to I put forward an idea, and I'm going to develop this each week as we talk about all the different things from this passage. I want to talk to you about a cheap understanding. A cheap understanding of God and of, our, of how to be righteous and how to understand his word. A cheap understanding is built on ideas like, I am not as wicked as blank. I may not be great, but I was going to point at someone and then, sorry, everyone in that corner, I was just going to start pointing. Uh, but uh, that'd be rude. Um, I don't know you all well enough for that. But, um, and even if I did, terrible. Um, a, a cheap understanding. I know that I don't always live up to God's ways, but um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say who. They're both in here. But yesterday we were doing our pork fundraiser, um, and two boys left the freezer door open. Um, for an extended period of time, and when I said, boys, both of them tried to explain it was the other person. Neither of them moved towards the freezer door, and then when I said, boys, again, both of them tried more adamantly, and it became a running joke the whole day about, hey, guys, we should close the freezer, and, and over and over, the response was, it wasn't me. It wasn't, yeah, I was a part of putting things in the freezer. Maybe I should close the door. And I was instructed by a mom how to be a better dad. I should say, are you trying to cool the whole room down? So, um, so all, dads, there's a free one. Um, cheap understanding is I want to follow Jesus well, but it is not easy. And it's not. But a cheap understanding puts that word but there. Cheap understanding, I know I should prioritize my faith more, but at least I do more than... I know I can't live up to Jesus, and there should be a but there, oops, but, because um, we can't, but if we want to be righteous, we talked about this in the book of Revelation, Jesus who overcame calls us to overcome like he overcame. Cheap understanding is seeking to justify sin. It's wickedness. Sin, by the way, is redefining good and evil on our own terms. That's my favorite definition of sin. In the garden, eating from the tree, of knowledge, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, what they were doing was saying, even though God said this wasn't good, I think it's good enough. And, and putting this in our language for this series, sin equals redefining righteous and wicked on our own terms. Cheap understanding is about saying, you know, I know I should do this different. <laughs> I know there's a right way to do this, 
but I'm doing enough. It's, and it's what we do. We rationalize, we justify, we do everything we can to not be honest the way we should be honest. Now, costly understanding is far different. <laughs> Where the cheap understanding says, I'm not as wicked as, the costly understanding says, I am focused on right living. Now, note, it doesn't say, I live right all the time, but instead it doesn't seek to justify where living wrong is happening. Instead it says, I'm going to focus on living the right way, based on this. Costly understanding is, is I am learning to overcome where I am wicked. I'm not going to stay there to the best of my ability. Costly understanding is I want to follow Jesus well, so I set aside what is easy to follow him. Costly understanding is I know I should prioritize my faith more, so I do. It's that simple. We all can choose what we do with our time to some extent. Costly understanding is I encourage those who struggle. Um, going, back, going back to yesterday's fundraiser, um, I had a moment of extreme frustration. And in that frustration, I said something to Adam Baker, who was an all-star yesterday, among many all-stars. And Adam heard what I said and went, oh, and then Adam went and did what I should have done in the first place. And, and I saw what he did and went, man. And then I was encouraged and I was also, I, I felt wicked. And then I said, well, I'm going to follow Adam's example the rest of the day. Because I was really scared yesterday because we were having trouble getting going. And then Adam showed me a better way. And so I followed it. So Adam encouraged me when I was struggling. Finally, I know I can't live up to Jesus, but he gave me the Holy Spirit. So if, if, we, if we're cheap, we're going to say, I know I can't live up to Jesus. He was perfect. And you read anything. He's, I, he tells us in, in Matthew, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We can twist that all we want, but when we understand it on, our, on its terms, he's, he's offered us a way to do that. Now, now, we'll never live up to it and praise the Lord that we don't have to, but are we moving towards it at all? Costly understanding is about allowing my life to be reshaped by what God says is righteous and wicked, even when the outcome is me coming to understand where I am acting in wickedness. Costly understanding is not fun. <laughs> it's not, but it's good. And costly understanding is about understanding something where, where a year from now, you're not ashamed of the same things. A year from now, you're rejoicing about the way the Lord has been working in your life. Costly understanding takes a lot of work. And, and I, I need to say this. I need to say this. We say, well, we're at church, so of course we know all this. But do we live all this out? Because it's very easy for us to feel good about what we're doing when we're at church, and it's very easy for us to start to do this. And to do this to some extent, but to never really be honest about the way we're called to live and the way we're living. It is very easy for Christians to be building wicked cultures. When you look at the percentage of Christians in the United States as a whole, based on how they self-identify, and then you look at the state of our nation, and then you look at the state of the church, where many churches are shrinking and falling apart, and many churches that are growing are just growing from people leaving other churches, and you look at all these things. And when you look at the fact that it's sometimes really hard to tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in any tangible way besides their church attendance, it's very easy 
for people intending to be righteous to be wicked. And remember, the wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked aren't trying to be wicked, but they're not trying to be righteous. I don't think many people are out there thinking, I'm going to be as wicked as I can. Yes, there are some extreme examples, but most of the time our wickedness is more tied to complacency and inaction and in our ability to justify and comparatively put ourselves above others. And that's what we do. It's why discipleship doesn't work very well a lot of the time. It's not that discipleship shouldn't work well. It's that we have our discipleship conversations on the cheap understanding. Like, ah, I messed up, but I'm doing better than so-and-so. And and if you're a small group leader or someone in a position of influence over others, the response to that is, let's talk about you. This conversation is a conversation. We're talking on the church level and the authority level and all these things, but this is a conversation for households, parents. Costly understanding with your kids is hard. It's not fun. I mean, it's fun when you have an 18-month-old and she can't really talk back, Um, but I'm sure I will feel much less good about this in like a decade when she's almost a teenager and she's 20 feet tall. um, But I, I say this because costly understanding it, it costs something. I mean, it's that simple. But if we're going to understand things on God's terms, if we're going to understand his word on its terms, it's going to come with a cost. And a huge part of that cost is us coming to terms with where we're acting in wickedness and we're trying to blind our eyes to it and we're not trying to live it out. But if we're unwilling to do this, we're never going to get to this. I want to understand God with such integrity that it does not matter what arises. I am able to respond with wise action that leads others to begin understanding, begin to understand God in the same way and do the same types of actions. We're going to build on this next week. We're going to talk about integrity, and we're going to keep building on this idea. And my prayer for you as we close, um, this is really awkward. I have no action points for you except to reflect on this. I, I do have an action point of um, this fall— when we kick off our next sermon series, if you're not in a small group or if you're looking to go deeper in your small group, now is the time to start praying. We're in summer mode. VBS is over, which means everyone's going to start going on vacation. It's what happens every year. No judgment there. Go. It's been a hard 18 months and probably longer than that, but at least the last year and a half has been rough. Go, go travel, but start thinking, if I want costly understanding this fall, what is it going to take? Because here's what's going to happen this fall. I promise, I promise, this is what's going to happen. All the things that you haven't been able to do the last 18 months are going to be back and fully available to you. All of them. And we're going to have this idea of we got to make up for lost time. We already have that everywhere. I see that all the time right now. And costly understanding is thinking about, did I need all that in the first place? And what do I really need to focus on? And it's saying, I'm, I'm, I have a chance right now to have my priorities look different than they've looked in the past when I knew they were wrong, but I was in the middle of everything happening. The starting point for today is to start reflecting and start thinking about how your fall is going to look different than past falls. And how your summer, you can do that too. But I'm, I'm launching ahead towards the fall because really, it's, it's coming. It's coming so soon. And I just want to encourage you to be thinking that far ahead and start thinking intentionally about costly understanding this fall. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good. 
We thank you that the call you have for our lives and the call you have for us to follow you is one that is good and righteous, and it is one that leaves us or that leads us to a revived soul, to understanding and wisdom. It, it leads us to to just rejoicing in the heart. It it leads us to enduring with you. It leads us to following you well. It leads us to seeing the world with pure eyes, the way you've called us to, and it, it, it leads us to standing with you forever. And we pray, Lord, that you would help break our hearts where we settle for cheap understanding, where we don't really follow your word, we just pretend to follow it better than others. We pray we would not be known for the little bit we do, but instead we would be known for the way we follow you well. We also recognize we cannot do it on our own, but we thank you, you've given us the Holy Spirit, that we would not be those who stay stuck in sin, but that you did not just cover our sins, but you've empowered us to be able to to move away from it and to follow you well and faithfully. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've given us the Spirit in each other that we could learn who you are better and better. We pray we would follow you well on your terms and that we would follow your definition of righteousness to the best of our ability and we would keep moving towards you. We pray that our church would be a culture that builds up disciples more and more. We would produce more and more disciples. We praise you for all the baptisms we've had and faith commitments and we pray we would see this happening more and more as you build through your kingdom here this church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.